morning. So you may remember last week we uh, took a break from Acts. We're going through this series called Acts of the Spirit, and we're gradually working through the whole book of Acts. We've got to around chapter 12 at the moment, but we took a break because it was Mother's Day. And we did some good Mother's Day stuff uh, last week. I'm sure uh, you, you recall that, some of you at least that were here at the time. And um, this week, we pick it up again. So we go back to Acts, and we begin to, to follow again the story. Uh, I'm going to recap for you a little bit, because uh, two weeks ago, you may not remember exactly, we got to the part where the church was really being established in Antioch. Antioch is that uh, city which is um, kind of up almost on the, on the Turkish border there, where Turkey is now. And the early church had uh, dispersed to that point, and uh, uh, Peter had a vision. Do you remember that, Peter's vision? And uh, the vision had told Peter that now the message was to be preached to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So um, God's plan was reaching out to the world, and it was really happening in Antioch. Barnabas and, and Saul had come to the city of Antioch, and they were training, they were building disciples, they were growing disciples. Um, and it was, you know, it was really a hotbed. It's a, it's a, it was a great place to be at the time. You could see from the accounts we have that uh, these folk were full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a lot of details, but we can see that, and we can see what happened afterwards. And then Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, by the way, takes us back to the story in Jerusalem, kind of briefly, all right? because something happens in Jerusalem which he cannot ignore, even though right now most of the stuff's going on in Antioch. So while Antioch is happening around, we think it's 40 to uh, 44 AD, so about 12 years after the resurrection of Jesus, somewhere around there, we go back to Jerusalem. And then we come to this key guy, King Herod. Well, this is no booze. King Herod. Um, do you, where do you recall King Herod turning up in the Bible? Uh-huh, the story of Jesus. Yeah, the birth, yeah. He was around, in, uh, around the time of the uh, crucifixion as well. He was also uh, implicated there, was he not? Yeah. So how is it that we have Herod now talking to Peter? We have Herod at the birth of Jesus, which was 40-odd years ago. And... Does this man live forever? <laughs> so I, I was looking that up because I'm thinking, this is very confusing. Um, in fact, uh, the, there was a dynasty, the Herod dynasty, which really lasted for 30 years before Jesus was born, all the way through to about 90, 92 AD. You have um, Herod the king who died around the time that uh, Jesus was born, but you also have his sons and his grandsons, and they're all appearing in the story. Because the Herods were these... Uh, client kings of Judea, which the Romans had put in place because they thought that would be a good way to keep peace in the region. Not so, uh, not so successful. But anyway, he was a Herod one. The first Herod was called King of the Jews around 37 BC. And he became known as Herod the Great, who became the king of, of the whole of Judea. Um, and he ruled to around 4 BC, which nowadays we think is a roughly when, uh, at the time when Jesus was born. And he was a bit of a madman. 
killed a lot of folk, killed a lot of male children, you recall, around the time of uh, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Um, And then one of his sons, um, Herod Antipas, ruled after him. Um, He played a part in the trial of John the Baptist and the trial of Jesus. It was another Herod, but it was King Herod. And then we have another Herod coming into the story now. He's his grandson of the first guy, Herod Agrippa. And uh, he held power in uh, Judea from 34 to 44 AD, roughly. And he's deciding to persecute the church. Uh, He persecuted a few other folk as well, but persecuting the church. And even after him is his great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II, who um, is involved in the trial of of Paul, which is in Acts 26, which we'll get to in a few months. I hope. So the Herods were not well loved, but they really, uh, the whole Herod dynasty, if you like, is, is central to uh, what's happening at, the, at this time uh, with the church and with Jesus and so on. So <clears throat> before we go back into Acts, uh, I thought I'd take a little detour. Who likes action movies? Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, Mission Impossible. Um, The Bond movies, of course. Yeah. Jason Bourne. I'm getting some nods. This is good. You definitely like action movies. There's some of you that don't, I know, because it's too, you know, it's too stressful. But for the rest of us, we like action movies, right? So I thought we'd write a script together this morning, okay? Are you ready for me? A script. Um, Or maybe just guess what would happen either way. So our hero, he's played by a handsome British guy. Um... The, the Sean Connery type, you know. Um, and, and imagine the scene. So the scene is, um, oh, so dark. The scene is, um, he's uh, sitting in a dungeon. He's a bit banged up. He's, uh, he's handcuffed to two soldiers. He's been there for a few days. Dirty. Damp. There's a big, heavy wooden door. Right? It's got to be made of oak. It's really you know, solid door, iron straps on the hinges. The walls are cold, ancient stone, you know, um, moss, slime, and it's kind of dark. And there's a commotion outside. All right, something's going on. What happens next in your script? The door blows open. I agree. Yes, there's some kind of explosion. The door blows open. Somehow, our hero does not touch by the explosion, of course. What else happens? Yeah, a whole load of guys dash in with rifles, probably, I guess. Is that what happens? Yes, a beautiful female Russian spy comes. Yeah, right. um, the door blows off. All of the soldiers somehow are lying on the floor. Other red dots on them or something, I suppose, and suddenly they're on the floor. Um, and crash, bang, and he gets out. Is that about right? We wrote it, didn't we? You're okay. All right. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay. So our story is a bit like that, but not exactly. So let's see how this works in, uh, in the situation in, uh, in Acts 12. All right. And this is regarding Peter rather than our famous British guy. So um, 
That's how it works out. So let's read through Acts 12, 1 to 18. It's a bit long, but you'll get the uh, story as we go through. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a bright light or light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It, it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself, and he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, called, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the, bro and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. What do you think? Somewhat of a different story, wasn't it, than the one we kind of put together earlier? Uh, a little more subtle, perhaps. Not so much action. No one died, at least not at this point. Um, no noise. No alarms went off. Oh, no explosions. There was really no collateral damage at all. But there was an urgency. Did you see that? The angel is telling him to hurry, instructing him what to do. And Peter, well, he was out of it. He was, thought he was dreaming. Um, almost, I don't know, we could say ninja-like, perhaps, <laughs> in, in the way that, uh, that this happens. So really astonishing that God had done this. And I think you can understand why Luke has to go back to the account in Jerusalem to uh, explain this 
and to include this account in, in Acts, um, where the, uh, when the main part of God's story at this point had moved to Antioch. So it's a demonstration of the power of God rather than the power of man, and an account you know, that had to be told. Even amongst the uh, incredible happenings of the early church, this is uh, quite a demonstration of God intervening, is it not? So let's look at some of the characters for a moment in this, uh, in this story as it uh, appears in, in Acts here. First, Herod, because I think I find uh, Herod's part in this almost amusing. Herod was taking precautions to stop something from happening. He assigned 16 soldiers to guard a single fisherman. And they were determined soldiers. They didn't just lock him in a cell. They bound him with chains and slept beside him, possibly even chained to him. So they were determined. So Herod was expecting something. So if Herod believed that Peter had the protection of Almighty God and that God was going to do something, why resist at all? What did he think was going to work in this situation? seems to me that God versus Herod is, is kind of a mismatch. So Herod's reaction to me is, is peculiar in, in the, the way that he tries to stand up against something that he feels is going to happen, and yet somehow he thinks he can defeat. What about from Peter's perspective? Must have been a tough time for Peter, don't you think, this uh, sitting in this cell? The Feast of Unleavened Bread is, um, is seven days long. So it seems like Peter was arrested at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and he was going to be brought out by Herod at the end of that time. So he's been in this prison for five or six nights now. It's, uh, it's been a while. James had recently been put to death. So the next day was his execution day. Presumably Herod was going to bring him out and execute him somehow. And how was Peter? Well, the account tells us that he was asleep. He was not on his knees begging and praying. Maybe he'd already done that. Maybe he was maybe he was gone now, too much for him. And this had happened before, okay? Um, if you remember in Acts 5, we read it uh, some while ago, uh, it says they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, the angel said, and tell the people the full message of the new life. So in that situation, they had been arrested and put in jail. And that very night, the angel broke them out again. And they were free. This time, he's in jail. And he's been in jail for quite a while. Many nights, several nights. So what was he thinking? What would you have been like in that situation? Do you have doubts now? Or maybe he was just at peace and really had a peace that God was going to act. I don't know that my faith would have held through that. I would have assumed the worst. And the deliverance when it came, Peter was kind of out of it. He was hardly even there. It's, it was surreal for him, wasn't it? It was like he was drifting through a dream. But God intervened. 
Now, there's another important character in this story. How about the angel? Just one. We have an angel in Philadelphia, by the way. Have you seen it? I brought you a picture. Do you know where that is? Yay! <laughs> I should have something to give you for that. Well done. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, a statue in 30th Street Station, and it's quite magnificent. It's very large, very tall. And uh, it is um, the archangel Michael raising up a falling soldier out of the flames of war. And it depicts what we typically think of an angel, doesn't it? See big wings on the top there, um, and, and strong and powerful. Um, don't mess with, uh, with the angel, and, and in this case, showing great compassion and lifting the soldier out of, uh, out of the war. Is that what you think of when you think of an angel? For the work of freeing Peter, God chose an angel, but it was not the flappy wing sort. Yeah? Why did God send an angel? He could have floated him out. He could have ordered an earthquake. He could have caused all the guards to fall ill suddenly. Why did he send an angel? I was thinking through that and I think, well, it's, it's very personal, isn't it? That you have a messenger, a heavenly being from God that has come you to Peter God is demonstrating that he, inter- that he intervenes in a individual and personal way and the angel appeared exactly as a man he was not in any way disconnected from the reality of what was around him he told Peter to hurry so there was presumably some reason to hurry um, and other than appearing and a light shining he was completely human. But the scene we're looking at here, was, it, was, uh, it was miraculous. It reminded me of a verse. Do you recall this verse? It says this in Hebrews 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Do you know that verse? Angels are not always obvious. Such is community in our day that we've rarely entertained strangers, I have to say. Maybe we need to rethink that a little bit. But some have entertained angels without knowing it. And it didn't seem so strange to these early Christians. When, when Peter comes to the house later, you, you remember he's knocking on the door and they think that an angel is at the door, not Peter. So the story as... Luke relates it, reminds us of God's practical and personal intervention in our lives. That God takes direct action, and when he does, there's nothing that can stop him. Have you ever had an angel drop in to help? I don't know, I haven't talked to all of you. Maybe some of you have had an experience where you've you've seen or felt an angel was was there to help. There's another verse in, um, in Psalm 34, it's this one. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Psalm 34. I believe that. There are many stories around of people that 
um, have been delivered by angels um, or saw something, someone delivered by an angel. It's really hard to authenticate them, though, because you, you just don't know the people well enough to be able to do that. Um, but I do believe they happen because they're in God's Word. But I want to tell you the story this morning that I can authenticate. It, it doesn't involve an angel. One was not seen, but it's hard to explain otherwise. It was certainly a remarkable deliverance, and it didn't happen to me, though when I look back on it, it's had a huge effect on my life. It happened to Fiona, my wife. When Fiona was 13 years old, she was involved in a car accident. Her, I got her permission to tell this story, by the way, and she's not here this morning, so we can, we're okay. <laughs> she's downstairs, I think. Um, her mother was driving on a, a new stretch of road, um, a, a dual carriageway, a divided highway, you would call it, and uh, the car is moving out to overtake. The car hits a curb at about 50 miles an hour and uh, rolls over, landing on the roof with the roof crushed. Now, you have to bear with me because this was in England. Now, in England, we drive on the left and the steering wheel is on the right. You got that? All right, that's why I've got it to explain this to you. So I'm driving here. This, I'm Fiona's mother. Oh, I'm driving here. And she is sitting here. Okay. So she's the pa- in the passenger seat. We've hit a curb. What happened next was the driver's door flies open. And her mother and her are thrown through the driver's door. Neither of them are wearing seatbelts. Okay? They're thrown through the driver's door from the passenger side and land on the road. Her mother has a few cracked ribs. She has a scraze on her leg. That's it. They get up and they walk to the central reservation and try and recover themselves. The car goes on and rolls over and the roof is crushed. If they'd have been in that car, they would not be alive. But they were not in the car. Somehow they were not in the car. If you ask Fiona about that, you can. She she doesn't remember much about how that happened. She, She just knows that it did happen. The policeman was very clear to them when he came along to sort things out afterwards that uh, if they'd have been in that car, that would have been the end. They would, they would be crushed as the, uh, as the roof collapsed. How does a person get past the handbrake and the gear shift and the steering wheel and out the door without trying in an instant? I don't know. But it happened. And I'm really, really glad it happened. I didn't know Fiona at the time. But if it hadn't have happened, how different would it have been? There's a, ble- there's a blessing out of three generations because 
God intervene. I don't know if there was an angel sitting there and pushed. No one saw an angel. But it's an incredible story of God's deliverance. And it happened. But God is not distant. He is there and he is intervening. And he will influence small things and things that shape generations. He does both. He's able to do that. Okay. So let's see how this turns out for Herod, shall we? We'll go on with the passage. After Herod had a thorough search made for him, this is Peter, and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food and supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. References other than the the Bible talk about Herod's death and that he he didn't die immediately, but he had a a severe and violent stomach pains, it's reported, and that they started at that event and they lasted for five days and they resulted in his death. It was a pretty horrible death, I think. And we're told here that an angel struck him down, not just a disease. So, I think my first lesson here is beware of impious flattery. He was praised as God. He chose to acknowledge that. And God struck him down. So not giving the glory to God was Herod's fall. God does not say, because you kill Christians or mess with Peter, I'm putting an end to you. This is the voice of God and not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Sobering, isn't it? So why is it so bad to not be giving the praise to God? Well, I think it's because it's fundamental. It's fundamental to our existence and to our weakness. Sin is choosing our thing over God's thing, right? So our basic sin is putting ourselves and selfish desires before God. We're a people with free choice. Look around you in any public place. People dashing around, making their own choices. God has granted us freedom. But if we choose only for ourselves, that is our fundamental sin. We, we, we choose for God and to follow him. I'm not sure if I shared this verse with you before, but this is a foundational challenge for me, this, uh, this particular verse. And it's, uh, it's from uh, Isaiah. This is the one to who this is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
which is the opposite of what Herod did. Yeah? He had pride upon pride till he had himself in comparison with God and God ended it. God wants us to be humble. Why is that? Because we should be. Because those who recognize they are not important get it that God is important. God requires us to be humble, to have a modest or low estimate of our own importance, contrite, broken in spirit because of the sense of the sin that we have, and trembling, treating God and his word with respect and reverence because he is God. And it's hard, right? That's hard. It's very hard. And it's hard because it's the basis of our sin is rebellion against God. This is who God desires, the man or the woman that God desires. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A fundamental characteristic of a godly man or woman is humility. And that's not where Herod was. I think this is a verse you might want to stick it stick on your mirror or put on your PC desktop or something, but to remind us always of our place and who God chooses. I have a couple of other verses to follow on from that that I wanted uh, to remind you of. Next one is from uh, Psalm 75, and it says this. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Where does success come from? We think we do it all in our own pride, don't we? We, we think uh, it's all because of us. But the final count, the final count God has to say, he puts down and he lifts up. Would you say Herod was successful in life? He was a king. He had position. He had influence. He had authority of, over life and death of people. Probably had great wealth. Was he successful? Was he happy? God puts down and lifts up. I think God put him where he was, and God took him down. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's quoted in the New Testament, but it comes from the book of Proverbs. And Peter himself, the same Peter, wrote this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. He lifts you up in his time. Sometimes life, you know, it doesn't seem fair, does it? But, you know, we have a limited view of how God deals with people. We have a, an, an earthly view of what success means, that it is related to money and possessions and influence, and it's not the right one. It's, it's not really where God wants us and where God puts us, and it's not success in his eyes. We see dimly God lifts us up. I think this is tricky because Often, I don't know about you, but you, you, you see people around you that 
seem to be successful. And, but they have worldly things. They have earthly things. They have things that don't necessarily bring them happiness or advance God's kingdom. So they, what they have is very transient. It's not what God wants for us. What is the man and woman who stands in the favor of his creator, almighty God? So I think we, we must soberly consider our own position and walk humbly before him. And flattery, perhaps we should redirect flattery, especially if it in any way takes the glory from God, because its end is death. I spent some time few last couple of weeks now thinking about this whole passage of Acts. And there's a dilemma in this chapter, and I've avoided it so far. Um, but it's this. Why Peter and not James? Did you notice? God sent his angel to save Peter. But James was executed by Herod and not saved. Why? This is God's story, right? James was the brother of John. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle, the core team of the disciples. They were there when, with Moses and Elijah when Jesus was transfigured, if you read that story. Um, they're the three that are in the center of his plan. Nothing could be allowed to touch them, can it? They're precious for the building of the church. So why Peter and not James? What was God doing? Was he not there for James? Did the church not pray enough? Did James do something wrong? Did he disobey? Did God give up on him? What happened? Why didn't God save them both? Tough question. Anyone have an answer? Good. <laughs> it's not a convenient story, is it? it? It's not the way we would have written it, right? Um, it's real life. God is intervening, but not in the way that we might expect. Things happen sometimes, and we don't understand. Our lives are full of, why this? Why not that? Sufferings falling on those that deserve better. Blessing coming to those that seem to have dirt on their hands. So why Peter and not James? The question reminds me that he is king. God is king. Because I don't think there is a satisfactory earthly answer to this question, but I'm okay with that. Because God is God. And if you want an answer, the best I can do is, God is God. God is sovereign. God is king. He knows the beginning and the end. He is the beginning and the end the Alpha and the Omega. And that for me is the real message of this passage, of this story. We have an awesome and glorious God and he is Lord and King. He lifts up, he puts down. He decides when and how he will act and nothing can stop him. His wisdom, his wisdom is beyond our understanding. He is God. When we get that, we are expectant, yet trembling, and humble before him. A humble man or woman 
is a man or woman that fears God because he knows God's greatness. Because he knows he is almighty. He makes Herod low, even to a painful death. He chooses to keep Peter on this earth for a few more years, but not James. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He rescues us how he chooses when we know we need it and when we don't. He makes us wait or he delivers us. He is God. He decides how he intervenes because he is God. He is glorious. And, you know, we have no right to question, really, because we lack the framework to understand. So for me, this just leads back to worship. Rather, our role is just to look and to listen for what he is doing and live our lives in worship to him. With all creation, I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. I will adore you. You are my everything. Because God is God. God is sovereign. It's easy to say that, but hard to understand it. He is sovereign. He is God. What I think is we need, we presume, we presume we know better, and we need to relearn or remember that he is God, that he is the king of glory. He is awesome and glorious. What best describes to you the immensity of God? Is there a way to see it? Sometimes I, I, I like to, to look at creation and, and go to, I don't know, awesome places. I love mountains. I love places that, I, that you can see something extraordinary like that to, to help me contemplate how big God is. But even those things are just small and nothing compared to God. I think we slip into treating Almighty God as our pocket help. Does that make any sense? We have a convenient place for him. And we call on him occasionally when we need it, but we don't, we allow our familiarity to decrease what we think of him. I don't know, perhaps you know, we put him in this box to give us uh, understanding and, and control, and it's so easy for us to do that. But he is the glorious one. He puts down and he builds up. We must respect and honor him. He's not just the provider of small mercies. He is creator, redeemer, and king. And our problem is our God is not big enough. Not that he isn't, but we need our eyes opened. We find it hard to accept what God does or seems not to do because our God is not big enough. We shrink him in our eyes to what we can cope with, to what we can control, what we can feel happy with. And, you know, in the same way, we lack humility because our God is too small in our eyes. You see the connection? As we think God is smaller as we allow that picture to shrink so we get bigger. Our humility turns to pride. Humility comes from really understanding who God is. So we must ask him to open our eyes. 
He makes kings low. He makes nations nothing. He put an end to Herod. He ended the Roman Empire. He conquered death. He intervenes in our lives. He commands angels. I remember the story in Exodus of um, when God calls Moses and Moses wants him to God to give him his name so that when he goes to the Israelites, he can say who he is. Um, and all God will say is, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent you. He is the great I am. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Before him, all the nations are nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and, and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because his great power and mighty strength, not one is missing. How great is our God. We must serve him in all and worship him. And the wonderful thing about all this is not only is he great, but the truth is that our glorious Heavenly Father chooses to be for you, for us. Every day, we don't know it. He intervenes. He keeps us. He delivers us. He lifts us up. When I look back, I see how God has intervened and blessed me, and I am truly grateful. Not just for the deliverance that, that I share with you earlier, but I am truly grateful. You know, this week my children will be in town, my first grandchild, a wedding, a new beginning, I'm getting a new daughter. I will rejoice. Nothing shows God's blessing to me more than that. And he has intervened for you and for me. Our God is awesome. Our God is awesome, yeah? I think even Herod would agree if he could. Our God is awesome. We're going to move on to our response time in a moment, but I thought I'd finish by just reading to you the verses from Philippians 2, which are familiar, but let's listen to them again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled in your presence because of who you are. You are glorious, Lord. Forgive us for every time that we seek to compare you to anyone else or anything else or dare to think that we have an ounce of wisdom that can stand against yours, Lord. Forgive us for our rebellious hearts that swell with pride and minds that seek to place you in a box. Lord, we declare you as awesome and holy almighty God, Lord and King. You are our King. We ask that you would take us and teach us, Lord, more and more about you, that we would grow in our understanding of you, that you would grow mighty in our heads and minds, Lord, as we follow you and worship you and praise you. Lord, we thank you that your love for us is evident your care over us is evident. We thank you that you intervene, that you've rescued, that you save and protect. We thank you for your angels, Lord, that you deploy and protect and deliver us. Open our eyes to see your works around us. We give you glory. And Lord, we ask that we would be those that are humble and contrite in spirit and trembling before you, not in fear, Lord, that you would strike us, but simply because you are who you are, and that we recognize our place before you. Give us faith, Lord, as we continue to trust you and your ways as you reveal it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.